Welcome. You are listening to Intentional Conversations from Nika White Consulting, an encore presentation of our weekly podcast where we intersect diversity, equity, and inclusion with leadership and business. Let the conversation begin. Dante King is a native of San Francisco, California. He is an author of the new book, The 400-Year Holocaust, White America's Legal, Psychopathic, and Sociopathic Black Genocide and the Revolt Against Critical Race Theory. Dante is also a historian, scholar, thought leader, facilitator, and coach. Dante has worked and consulted for more than 15 years as a human resource management professional, specializing in the implementation of anti-racist practice and organizational development and change. Dante partnered with the San Francisco Board of Supervisors to develop and enact the city and county of San Francisco's racial equity ordinance, which led to the first ever citywide Office of Racial Equity. Dante was previously the Deputy Director for the Department of Public Health, Office of Health Equity in San Francisco, one of the largest public health organizations in the country with more than 8,000 employees. Dante has presented at annual conferences such as the National Education Association's Annual Conference on Race and Social Justice and American Public Health Association. He has been featured on Legal Lens with Angela Reddick Wright, which is KBLA 1580 for those of you that know that, and the Sassandra Show, KPFA Radio, California Prevention Training Center podcast, and a host of other outlets. Podcast community, you know what we do at this time. We go to the chat, we pull those emojis, but in our own way, we welcome our guest co-host, Dante King. And so I invite you to do that at this time. And I'm going to stop sharing my screen so that I can bring Dante on and highlight him. Hello, welcome. Thank you for saying yes to our invite, Dante. Thank you, Dr. White, for having me and for, to the entire NWC team. I'm glad to be here. Oh, fantastic. We're glad to have you. So I want to jump right in. These hours always go by way too fast, and I love to make sure we can capitalize on as much time as possible. And so first and foremost, I've read your accolades, your credentials, a little bit about how you show up to this space. But one of the things that we often do on this podcast is before we delve into great dialogue, we invite our guest co-host to share a little bit more about themselves and specifically what we're looking for or what are some other ways in which we can get connected to Dante, how you show up to this work, maybe some other fun facts or interesting information about yourself that we wouldn't find in your bio, but help us just to connect to you on a deeper level. It could even be maybe some intersecting identities that also frames um, how in which, again, you approach this work. So share with us, please. Sure. So uh, first and foremost, I would say you uh, please go to my website at DanteKing.com to connect uh, to me, with me, to keep in touch. I, um, In addition to my book, I, I am teaching a, a host of courses actually right now, uh, one through UCSF. Uh, it's called Understanding the Roots of Racism and Bias, Anti-Blackness, and its Links to whiteness, white racism, privilege, and power. Uh, and for those of you who are clinicians in the, the healthcare field, physicians, nurses, uh, you can actually receive credit. Um, and I'm teaching a 12-week course that centers um, much of the content in my book and really uh, providing an experience to analyze and examine it. Um, you can also link with me on Instagram at Dante D. King Official or uh, Dante King official on Facebook, which is my, my main page. Um, 
so something interesting in terms of something that, that I think maybe I left out of my book is that I identify as uh, Black first, <laughs> uh, male presenting, queer, but also uh, gay, homosexual. Um, and so those are some intersecting identities that, are, that really just have shaped my entire experience, how I show up in life um, as a child. Um, I was always kind of the, a different type of individual and I experienced a lot of rejection. And through that, I, I often tell people I developed a lot of self-love, but that came through the reinforcement uh, and confidence that my mother instilled in me. And so she's my role model. You'll see that in my book if you get it and read the, the dedications. Um, so that, yeah, that's about it. I'll stop there. But I'm pretty much an open book is what I would also say. No, that is great. Thanks so much, Dante, for giving us just a little bit of a deeper dive into your world. So I want to dive right in. I know I referenced this in your bio, but from your bio, you helped create the first ever Office of Racial Equity in San Francisco. That's pretty impressive. How were you able to combine racial justice and government in San Francisco? I'm sure there are many people that are part of municipalities that are thinking, how can we bring some of that brilliance to help benefit our local geographies? Yeah, so um, not an easy task, and yet it, it needed to happen. Um, there were data sets that were produced uh, at the city and county prior to, I would say the, the year prior that the mayor had actually requested, and it showed um, a pretty alarming uh, stark disparities in terms of how Black people were experiencing uh, their employment experiences throughout the city. Everything from recruitment and hiring to promotion, recognition, pay, promotions, discipline. Uh, Black people uh, were situated in a very disparate position. And so there was a political will, I would say, at the moment. And we just happened uh, to capitalize on it. So there was a lot of lobbying and partnering with the San Francisco Board of, Boards of Supervisors. Um, and working with, you know, even the mayor's office, having sit down conversations with her to identify what needed to occur. And so the legislation uh, was a collaborative effort. We, uh, a group that I belong to called the Black Employees Alliance, we had an opportunity to integrate some pretty meaningful pieces uh, around workforce into it. And it established not only just the office, citywide office of racial equity, but the a focus of what then became departmental racial equity action plans that were um, uh, commissioned for every department throughout the city and county of San Francisco. And I happened to be able to uh, lead and work on the constructing the action plans for two of the largest departments, both public health and the transportation agency. Thank you, Dante, for sharing that. That's incredible. So let's talk a little bit about white supremacy culture. And specifically, the question is this. I know I'm, I'm driving right in, but I think it's such an important conversation. And I know that a lot of your work is centered around this. But how has America constructed white supremacy culture through the years? Sure. So I'm going to try and be brief, but give me about three to four minutes to explain sure. this. I'm going to go through some slides. One of the main things that I deal with uh, pretty early on in my book, and which is central to my work, is defining anti-Blackness and looking at what, what that is and what it means, because that was the foundational um, component, if you will, uh, uh, for 
white supremacy or the development or evolution of whiteness. And so uh, a, a very succinct way that I will use or define it, define it this morning is anti-Blackness is a white American legal, social, cultural, economic, institutional value and belief system. It involves the deprioritization of humans labeled as Black people, as well as the criminalization, hyper-negativity, hyper-scrutiny, and negative positioning of Black people and or Blackness throughout all aspects of American life. And so Cheryl Harris, in her paper, Whiteness as Property, which she uh, wrote in the early 90s, 93, she says that whiteness is not only premised or, or emerged, it didn't emerge only for, for the purpose of exclu exclusivity only, but that it emerged uh, because there was a need, there was the necessity to subjugate others and particularly black people um, as the principal subjects of that subjugation. And so Theodore Allen in reading his work around the invention of the white race, he said that white identity had to be taught and so if you study the uh, legal system and the, the evolution of legality through the colonial period into the formation of the United States, you see um, mil a, a militaristic strategy uh, being used to uh, train white people psychologically, uh, spiritually, emotionally, mm -hmm. um, in terms of what becomes their priority and or essential to the, to the culture. And so mm -hmm. I'm gonna give you a few examples of that. So this is an insurrection, a law preventing, insur uh, pre preventing Negro insurrections. And this is 1680. And it says, whereas the frequent meeting of considerable numbers of Negro slaves under pretense of feasts and burials is judged a dangerous consequence. And let me just give some context. These people are gathering because prior to this moment, they are experiencing rape, they're experiencing pedophilia, they're experiencing sodomy, they're experiencing flogging. Uh, the magnitude of brutality is endless. Uh, and so it says, for prevention whereof for the future, be it enacted by the King's most excellent majesty by and with the consent of the General Assembly, and it is hereby enacted by the authority aforesaid, that from and after the publication of this law, it shall not be lawful for any Negro or other slave to carry or arm himself with any club, staff, gun, sword, or any other mm -hmm. weapon, of defense or offense, nor to go or depart from his master's ground without a certificate from his master, mistress, or overseer. And such permission not to be granted, but upon particular and necessary occasions. And so you can see just through this one excerpt of this law that it is not only concerned with um, limiting the whereabouts or the behaviors or actions of enslaved people, slaves, yeah. It's concerned with Negroes. So it is essentially anti-Black, it's, it's uh, mm. connoting that. And so it says, and every Negro or slave so offending not having a certificate as aforesaid shall be sent to the next constable who is hereby enjoined and required to give the said Negro 20 lashes on his bare back well laid on and so sent home to his said master, mistress or overseer. And it is further enacted by the authority aforesaid that if any Negro or other slave presumer lift his lift up his hand in opposition against any Christian shall for every such offense upon due proof made thereof by the oath of the party before a magistrate having received 30 lashes on his bare back well laid on. And so Christian connotes an Anglo-Saxon European uh, ethnic person at this point in time. And there's a transition that occurs uh, toward the end of this century and the beginning of the 18th century. Um, but this is 
saying in conditioning white people uh, in their relationship to black mm -hmm. people in terms of constituting that they can do whatever they want to a black person, to anyone within the African or a diaspora or black community and feel nothing about it. There's a legal, both a legal and a moral um, uh, sovereignty mm -hmm. that is central to, to this law and to, to many others. And so it says, and it is hereby further enacted by the authority aforesaid that if any Negro or other slave shall absent himself from his master's service and lie hid and lurking in obscure places, committing injuries to the inhabitants, it sh and shall resist any person or persons that shall by any lawful authority be employed to ap apprehend and take the said Negro, that then in case of such resistance, it shall be lawful for such person or person to kill the said Negro or slave so lying out and resisting, and that this law be once every six months published at the respective county courts and parish churches in this colony. And so it's dealing with Christianity as whiteness. And so when the, the terminology of whiteness then comes along, it replaces Christianity for a reason because they need to be able to distinguish between Indian Christians, Black Christians, because they make it legally, um, it is it is legally commanded in a in a sense um, that indigenous folk, black folk, transition into becoming Christians. But what this law is also doing, and subsequent laws like it, is replacing the humanity, the psychological, spiritual, emotional connection of white people's humanity to black people's humanity. Yeah. And so, therefore, you have the byproduct of being able to commit harm. It is uh, at the core. Violence is at the core of white Christianity, it's at the core of white morality. And um, what evolves from this, and you'll see this in some subsequent examples that I share, is not only the ability to commit harm and violence and not feel anything, anything about it, many white people develop uh, proclivities where they are joyful about committing mm -hmm. these acts. And so what we're dealing with and what um, some other scholars uh, frame it as is, the diabolical delusional nature of a psychology uh, where people, we have developed this cultural relationship to mistreat, degrade, exploit um, black and brown people, but particularly black people. Dante, this is deep. This is heavy. This is jarring. I mean, I think that a lot of us probably who are um, convened here today have found ourselves in conversations um, along these lines, but it still never gets easy to hear but it's important and it's context that we must have if we're going to be able to dismantle the, um, the, the, the deep, deeply rooted systemic racism that still exists and the harm to, to, to black people. So um, I'm sitting with this and I'm taking this in, but what's coming up for me immediately is how do we solve for this? And I know that you've spent some time really studying this issue to have thoughts that I'm sure are going to be really helpful for this community, but how do we unlearn anti-Blackness? So that's a good question. I think the answer is different based on you know, where you're, you, uh, you're sitting in the racial hierarchy. And I think the one thing that we typically, when we're focused on DE&I or DIMB, um, what we don't emphasize enough or what many people don't emphasize enough is that these, these cultural 
agreements, this, this cultural nature that exists was developed intentionally. And so people who sit at the racial, at the top of the racial hierarchy have an investment in, in, in their whiteness, in, in their white presentingness, in their proximity and or relationship to whiteness mm -hmm. and all of the um, benefits that come along mm -hmm. with it. And it's interesting because I was teaching a course this week and I had about 75 uh, individuals who were in it. And there were about, I think 30% of the group was white. And, and many of them, and I think it may be another uh, 20%, 20, 25% were non-Black. And I asked them, how many of you were raised to know, just based on what you saw in this culture, what was around you, what you learned from your families? How many of you were taught to know, to feel, to think um, that you were superior to Black people, that you were better? And all of them raised their hand. Mm. They were honest. And so the other, the next, the next question was, well, when did that go away for you? Mm. And it was the first time that they could ever be honest with themselves. And I think if um, we talk about the notion of implicit bias, mm. and much of it is not implicit. Most people know that they prefer Black people less and that they expect less for and expect less of Black people. And so if you are benefiting psychologically, emotionally, spiritually, because you feel superior in a culture that is competition-based, it's hierarchical, hierarchical mm -hmm. in, in its uh, form, then you need to have someone else to feel superior to. And so the other side of this is that when I asked the Black people, you know, what did you learn when you grew up uh, in, in your community? And they said, well, I grew up to know that I was just as good as anyone else. I said, that's the, the, that's the problem right there. It's deficit-based. You're, you're proving and striving to be just as good. And these people grew up with an orientation that they are superior to you. That, that's not an equal footing. You understand? And so the, the orientation, there's an orientation of entitlement and superiority, and then there's an orientation of lack. Um, and so there's a, there are just, there are many layers to this. And I would offer to you all, if you have professional development funds, if you can access certain resources to take my 12 week course that starts September 13th, this is very deep. And if I can, can I share a few more examples, Dr. White? Sure, sure, sure. And by the way, as you're pulling that up, I want you to, to know that there's a lot of great um, commentary that's coming through the chat. People are um, really hanging on to your every word. And, and again, it is jarring, you know, um, someone wrote that this is extremely difficult to digest. And so I just want to acknowledge the heaviness for this audience. Um, sometimes I think that even with the necessity of needing to engage in these type conversations, there is a level of just acknowledgement of how, of how hard it can be and difficult it can be. And so I, I don't want to undermine that at all. Yes, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Please share, Dante. Well, I, I appreciate you for pointing that out. And um, just think about you know, the way that you might be feeling now and really 12 weeks of waking up to yeah. these structures and, and what we've been through and carrying that feeling on for 12 weeks. It, it can change you. It will change you. Um, so this is an, a law in 1705, which uh, highlights um, 
kind of it magnifies an earlier law in 1669. In 1705, this is Virginia, they actually package all of these laws that are focused on Black people. And I'll give you an example. This consists of two. It says, um, and did any slave resist his master or owner or other person by his or her order correcting such slave and shall happen to be killed in such correction? It shall not be accounted felony, but the master owner and every such other person so given correction shall be free and acquit of all punishment and accusation for the same as if such accident never happened. Mm -hmm. And so think about how we experience the George Zimmermans, the Trayvon Martins being sh uh, shot, the Tamir uh, Rice's, the Sandra Bland. It's a cultural relationship to dehumanize, exploit, degrade Black people. And it is it goes on and on and on. Thousands of statutes developed like this every year for 400 years, right? And so it's not just that it happens once, but it's followed up and reinforced, and it trains the descendants of individuals. Uh, it trains Black people to mistreat and degrade other Black people. And so we operate and function from a place of anti-Blackness that can be more harmful to Black people more than white and some non-Black people sometimes in our aspirations to be as American and as white as we can possibly be. And so the next piece of this law says, and also if any Negro, mulatto, or Indian, bond or free, so this is not just dealing with enslaved people, it's dealing with free people, shall at any time lift his or her hand in opposition against any Christian, not being Negro, mulatto, or Indian, he or she so offending shall for every such offense proved by the oath of the party receive on his or her bare back 30 lashes well laid on, cognizable by a justice of the peace. So if you, if you lift up your hand against any white person who might be molesting your child, who might be raping your mother, who might be raping your daughter, who might be sodomizing your brother, sodomizing your father, who, who may have murdered one of your family members and you watched it. And if you lift up your hand to defend them out of that or to defend yourself uh, 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 for, for any such assaults that might be taking place concerning you, um, you are going to be given 30 lashes on your bare back and you don't even have to lift up your hand. This law says by the oath of the, the person can just assert that you experience threat. And so by the contents of this particular example and other subsequent examples that I share, the safety of black people resides in the minds of white people and any such other people who determine whether or not one is doing something suspicious or not in any given moment, okay? And so this is followed up and I'm not gonna go here, but in 1850, the United States Congress passes a bill called the Fugitive Slave Act, which, which requires every white person in the country essentially to become a, a racial, a, a police person as it pertains to African-Americans. This is 1850. And what they say in this law is that if you are white and if you suspect that a black person is supposed to be enslaved, you can take them into your possession and turn them in. And they were incentivized to do it. And so you have people such as Solomon Northrup, who the book um, 12 Years a Slave is about. Um, there are mm -hmm. other subsequent examples that I, I share uh, in my course. And these people were free. And yet they were accosted, they were kidnapped and turned in and, and, and turned into slaves. That's because the United States Congress, mm. the United States Congress facilitated organized terror against black people. And that continues through the 19th century by the Supreme Court of the United States, 
after the supposed emancipation, I mean, the Supreme Court took eight actions they, in eight rulings between 1873 and 1926 that were specifically target, targeted to um, dismantling the rights and the liberties of Black Americans in this country, in this culture. Um, and so I'm just going to uh, share, uh, again, this is towards the beginning of, of my work in, in the, the country forming or the colonies forming. Uh, this next law says, and, and for a further Christian care and usage of all Christian servants, be it also enacted by the authority aforesaid, and it is hereby enacted, that no Negroes, mulattoes, or Indians, although Christians, or mm -hmm. Jews, Moors, Mohammedans, or other infidels shall at any time purchase any Christian servant, nor any other except of their own complexion. You can only own people of your own complexion, but everyone can own Negroes. It's your complexion or darker or such of, or such as are declared slaves by this act. And get this. And if any Negro, mulatto or Indian, Jew, more Mohammedan or other infidel or such as are declared slaves by this act shall notwithstanding purchase any purchase any Christian white servant, the said servant shall ipso facto become free and equipped from any service then do. So Nika, sorry, but you, you can't hire any white people. They can't work for you. Sorry, Anum. Sorry, Jeanette. Sorry, Jariot. You cannot hire any white person. They cannot work for you. So this is shaping in the white mind. No matter who these people are, how educated or uneducated they may be, how in, in Nancy um, Eisenberg's book, uh, White Trash, the 400-year history of class in, uh, in America, she talks about the, the nature of many of these mm -hmm. white immigrants when they came here and how disenfranchised they were. And yet, they were still seen and positioned as better and superior to the most cultured, sophisticated, educated, intellectual, African person. And so we have to deal with the psychology right. of whiteness because there is value to everyday whiteness. Me being free to not experience the torture or the, the violence, the, the everyday, we call it, and, and there's this term microaggression, there's nothing micro about mm -hmm. something that debilitates a person psychologically, spiritually, it, it takes away their confidence, their, their self-worth, self-value. There's, there's nothing micro about that. And so I appreciate Dr. Uh, William Smith's work around racial battle fatigue because the bar is infinitely higher for black people because we have to suffer through anti-blackness and white supremacy and yet we're still expected to be great. And so that's what I help a lot of organizations with is creating space for, for Black people to be who we are and to put forth our issues. And people say, well, it sounds like, you know, well, how, how do we solve this? It sounds like it, it's per, too much, it's complex. It is. I don't think that there is a solve for it because it is one of the American identity, it's, it's rooted in, it's embedded into American identity. Anti-Blackness is needed. It's necessary for America to be what it is. It's hard to accept. <laughs> it's hard to accept. I mean, I appreciate how you are speaking so much truth and you're educating us at a level that I think um, is, 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 is really impressionable. 
Um, and I, I know for one, I'm going to have to sit with this because, you know, again, it's, it's really heavy. One of the things that you said is that they're training the descendants and it's happening without the descendants even realizing it's happening. And how many of us have been part of these conversations where we've heard white people really get offended by the conversation of white supremacy It's because don't blame me for what my ancestors did, but then you have to make sure that you reframe it too, but you're still benefiting from it. And so when you said they're training the descendants, it, that was, that really stuck out to me. And um, I, I want to give you a chance. I see you want to jump in. So I want to give you a chance to react. So and I, I actually want to expand the language because many, um, white individuals don't see themselves as implicated, especially if they say, well, my family didn't come here until the beginning of the 1900s. They didn't come here into the, the late 1800s. They came here, they weren't even around when, when slavery existed. The, the flaw, there, there, there's a significant flaw and or oversight or misunderstanding. Mm -hmm. And, in expanding the language, it's not about uh, ancestry because you may not have any relationship to, to these people. And yet what we're talking about, and I want you all to um, adopt this thinking, it's, it's about organizations. We're, these are racial organizations that are formed. These are political positions that are created and creating the Negro and creating whiteness, Christi Christianity and Christian within that first um, century and the way that the, the English dealt with it, the way that the Spanish dealt with it, it was a political organization. And so you have laws early on in this 17th century that say, for example, if you don't subscribe to Christianity, if you blaspheme God, you're gonna be murdered and all of your assets are going to be forfeited to the government, okay? That's the early 1700s. And so whiteness then, is a political organization. And over time, various groups of Eurocentric ethnic immigrants are inducted into that organization. Mm -hmm. And so all whites are implicated in this because once you join the organization, you get to benefit from the history of the organization and everything that the organization has done. And so to join any organization, this is true for you, uh, Dr. Dr. White, this is true for me, this is true for Cassette, Ralph, Sabrina, every person on here, to join any organization and not, not do your research to understand the history of that organization is to be complicit with the mission, vision, and values of that organization, not just in the present, but over time. And none of us, I don't think, would do that. Okay, and so we have to understand that as in terms of being a part with that organization, it comes with political power, it comes with political sovereignty, it comes with the sovereignty to be ignorant, it comes with the, uh, and commit harm and not uh, be accountable for it at all because the people who are not a part of that organization, who are a part of the powerless organizations, be it Blacks, Hispanics, this goes so deep that it provides that we will never be fully authentic and honest with you in any given moment because we don't feel comfortable. And so therefore it's not letting you off the hook, but we fear you in a sense. And it compels us to suppress our emotions, suppress our feelings, suppress our reactions about things that happen to us in the moment or in our lives 
because the people in the superior organization, not only are they unaware, they possess the capacity to even hear it. And with the absence of emotionality that exists within this organization, because part of becoming American or subscribing to whiteness and or Americanism is subscribing to a transactional nature of commodification. We, we only value people who contribute something to the American institutional uh, uh, apparatus. And so Dr. Dr. White, therefore you have to be a PhD. You have to have written a book. You have to uh, uh, have achieved or accomplished some measure of white patriarchal success, be it economically, be it position, position wise. Otherwise you don't mean anything. And the problem with that is that it does such harm to black and brown children who don't fit into the white academic model of education, of intellect. And because we, we have adopted these standards as our measures of which we will value our, ourselves and value others, when our children don't do well in, in, in school, we say to them, you need to get better grades. You need to try harder. We ask questions such as what's wrong with you? And there's nothing wrong with them. It's just that they or people like them, their ancestors didn't have the opportunity to contribute to what would be valuable for us. Um, and, and then also you've got, I mean, there, there, are so many, there are so many layers to this. And so I'm coming from a place of we all have value. Uh, whether we achieve uh, white measures of success or not, whether we whether we achieve that, we are we are valuable people, just inherently, and so we have to instill the type of confidence uh, that white people instill within themselves. I mean, we had a president, and this is something that people miss. A lot of people miss about Donald Trump, and I'm not saying that. Oh, I'm not here to to be political and so on and so forth. But Barack Obama achieved every measure of white success that there was possible and he was still criticized, right? He assimilated, he, he did everything, he did everything he needed to do, they still hated him. We right. had a president who followed him who was entirely incompetent. He represents the standard for white deficiency and white mediocrity. He could not even put whole sentences together. He couldn't give a speech that uh, <laughs> where, where he utilized or made uh, since for more than three sentences. I mean, it just didn't even flow. And no one talked about how inarticulate, how inadequate, how deficient, how unprepared he was for that office. Instead, they overlooked it. And wow, he knows how to make a deal because that's what we value in white patriarchal society. He's business oriented. He knows the numbers. He's about transactions. But all of these uh, moral standards that black and brown people have to fulfill and have to meet, that white people don't have to, to meet them at all. And so um, I, I actually quote from, I use an example in my book of this white man who said, I was a teacher for 17 years and didn't know how to read or write. And when I read this article, I talk about how affirming it was. It, it, just how reaffirming it was. I had been around white people like this my entire life. I, Dante King and others like me are compelled to 
be exponentially great, do exponentially more. And here you have someone that is admitting, I went from grade to grade to grade. My teachers knew that I couldn't read or write. They just encouraged me. Uh, they told me that I would get it one day. I <laughs> went through my uh, undergraduate and graduate education. I became credentialed, became an <laughs> educator and could not read or write. I said, wow. Think about how much power, how much freedom is located in that type of agency. This is so powerful, Dante. This is so incredibly powerful. Um, I, I'm looking at the time and I'm getting sad because I'm like, there's so much more that I know we need to cover. We'll definitely have to invite you back um, to share. Um, absolutely, America was founded on racist foundation and it continues to be deeply rooted in every single system without exception. And so I, I, I truly appreciate how even the historical nature of, 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 of the, the foundation of, that we started with, you're able to bring it to today. And so my next question is, first and foremost, I really would love to be a student in your course because if I'm just getting a flavor of it, just in this you know brief time together, I can only imagine what a 12-week course would do for our learning. Um, and I, I do know that we did share it into the chat. And so I hope that you all will take advantage of researching that further and considering it for yourself. But here's what I want to understand. In order for us to create a society where more people are moving towards this anti-racism position and stance, particularly organizations, right? And those leaders in organizations who are able to influence culture, policies, procedures, systems. How do we get them to engage in this type of conversation, knowing that it is useful for what we're trying to accomplish in the end? Because I can imagine that many will even just hear a brief synopsis of what this course entails, what, what your approach entails. And they're like, I'm not ready for that. I don't want to go there. How do you overcome that? Well, I mean, I go where my work will be, be celebrated and, and mm. appreciated. And it's not celebrated and appreciated everywhere. everywhere. And we also have to understand and recognize that there are forces that are working against. I mean, we're in a moment right now where rights are being taken away by the Supreme Court of the United States. You've got state legislatures that have members within it or within them who are designing and crafting legislation so that certain books and certain education will be banned. Yeah. Right? right. Um, and so the we have to, to then understand that the, the forces around this are stronger. For organizations that want and desire to center this work and to make changes, you know, I, I ask, I, I always go in with the question, what is your moral, what is the moral motivation behind this? Is there a political will? Will you get more money? Is this feeding an agenda at the moment? Or do you really want to cultivate long lasting, sustainable change? Uh, because if it is the latter, then great. I, I'm willing to invest my time, energy, focus, experience uh, into partnering. But if it's just to check off the, the box and, and things are just gonna go back to status quo, um, then not so much, but, but people have to be willing to dedicate the time, money, because we live in a capitalistic society, right. <laughs> um, the time, money, energy, and, and, and patience <laughs> to, yeah. to this process. It is a process, you know? Mm -hmm. um, 
Yeah, I don't want to go too off track with your question. <laughs> no, you're fine. So one of the things that you talked about um, as we were preparing for today is you mentioned that writing your book was both painful and liberating. Um, yeah. And I just want you to socialize with this audience around what was the most painful part of the process. But oh I also God. want to know what was the most liberating part of the process? Well, I'll start with that. The liberating, okay. <laughs> the, the liberating part of the process is that it helped me to understand that everything that we as Black Americans, particularly African-Americans, how we show up, what it is we do, it's the result of white domination. And so mm -hmm. when we look at, for example, Black criminality, where we're talking about, whether we're talking about violence, whether we're talking about someone going out to rob or steal, well, white people have set that up for us. They, they've given us, this, this country was founded upon that. And so I one of the things I deal with um, is the institution of sexual assault. Like mm. rape in America, the rape of black women, particularly when you look at this law of 1662, mm -hmm. that said that essentially you can rape black women and every child that they have subsequently are going to be enslaved because we're going to transition their status of lineage to the mother mm -hmm. as opposed to the father where which is where it uh, lied prior to that law um but subsequently this was the hardest part one of the hardest parts of my book um or my research and my work altogether. and there were many but when you get into the 19th century you have all of these laws that around rape and they're situating black men as the prototype for rape predominantly so in most uh, states in the United States, there were no laws on the books that prohibited white men from, from raping, uh, both white women and black women, but particularly uh, white men in states where there were statutes around rape, so most of them exempted white men. And so you have black men as the prototype for rapists and all of these laws exempt black women. And I think one of the most disturbing, I'm gonna give you two examples and part in this, I want to give a trigger warning because some of this may be very um, revealing and disturbing. Um, but you have this case, for example, where a young Black girl murdered her uh, owner who she had warned multiple times to stop raping her. And he had impregnated her. She had bore two of his children, was pregnant with a third one. And finally, she killed him because he was raping her through her pregnancies and it was continuing. And the judge gave this instruction to the jury. He says, if Newsom was in the habit of having intercourse with the defendant who was a slave and went to her cabin on the night he was killed to have intercourse with her or for any other purpose and she killed him, it's murder in the first degree. And he sentenced her to murder. So I'm gonna reread this, I'm gonna read it differently. If Newsom was in the habit of raping the defendant who was his slave and went to her cabin on the night he was killed to rape her or for any other purpose, and she struck him with the stick and killed him. It's murder in the first degree. So it wasn't the fact that she was defending herself against rape and brutality from a terrorist, right? But I, as the judge, acting as a sociopathic, psychopathic terrorist, agree that he had the rights to do whatever it is he wanted to do. In Mississippi, George V. State, concerning a case with a nine-year-old Black girl who was raped by a Black male slave, they actually convicted the slave of death, murder in the, in, in, uh, I'm sorry, they actually, actually consisted him, sentenced him to death. They convicted him of rape and sentenced him to death. 
This court concluded that the, it, it went to the Mississippi Supreme Court. The Mississippi Supreme Court concluded that slaves were not protected by the common law or statute because they were under the legal dominion of their masters as required as their status as property and that rape could only be committed upon the person of a white woman. And so this is what they, they handed down. They said that the crime of rape does not exist in this state between African slaves. Our laws recognize no marital status as between slaves. Their sexual intercourse is left to be regulated by their owners. The regulations of law as to the white race on the subject of sexual intercourse do not and cannot, for obvious reasons, apply to slaves. Their intercourse is promiscuous, and the violation of a female slave by a male slave would be a mere assault and battery. And so this almost took me out of here, Dr. White, and I really had to step away from, from my research because it just confirmed how intentional, how abusive, how exploitative, how terroristic, how diabolical, demented, and depraved this all has been, and that it has been done with thought. It has been done with precision. And when I think about the, all of the women, my cousins who have experienced sexual assault, who have experienced being molested by a family member, who have experienced being raped by white men, it, it's enough to make, to make someone go crazy. And I had to step away. I had to go into therapy. Um, I felt suicidal in certain moments because again, we're not just talking about people who had ideas and thoughts to go out and commit violence. It was legally facilitated both by both legislatively and, and through case law, through, 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 through case precedent. And that was hard to reconcile. And so we see, we still see it's less conspicuous today, but the same, um, the, the, the way in which legality unfolds and the ways in which it is enforced, we still see the same actions being taken. You can go and kill Philando Castile, you can kill Sandra Bland, you can, and, and there's nothing that's gonna happen to you. There were two women, one white, one black, who were seen, seen by the same judge, both a day apart. The white woman stole over $200,000. I think she got six months probation. The black woman was sentenced to four years in prison. I think she, uh, what she took was like maybe 40, $50,000. And so it's the psychology behind it. Um, and I'll stop there. I think I need a minute. Um, I'm gonna invite the audience to, if you desire to unmute yourself and share your comments or questions for our guest co-host. Turning my camera off for a moment. Hi, Lynn Roy. Hey, good morning, Dante. And everyone, I, I really appreciate your um, putting things in context. Um, it is heavy. Um, our history as a country, and even globally, is is heavy when we really go back and look at it. So, so thank you. This is kind of a tough topic, and it's not one, unfortunately, that we in the DEI space really go into. Um, I've been interviewing, and it's it's fascinating when this topic comes up. Um, one of the disqualifiers for me is I'm comfortable having the converse, conversation and leading it and facilitating it. But most don't want it at all. 
one organization, this was a multi-billion dollar organization, said, um, they're not going to deal with that until the fourth or, or the third or fourth year um, because they don't want to deal with the, the topic. Th this is my, and, and it's really just a comment and wanted to thank you. Um, to me, one of the most important things this body of work does is just getting people to acknowledge and own it and begin to think about what part of this big elephant can I bite? And then take it one bite at a time. But ignoring it, and you, you mentioned it already about being complicit. We in this space have really become extremely complicit uh, because we don't want to deal with it. We have other things that we want to do. Um, I have one organization that I interviewed with, major, major, major DEI organization. They don't deal with it at all. Um, and so I just wanted to thank you. I know it's hard work, but I do believe this is, this is where, if we can get this right, the work that's done in diversity, equity, and inclusion um, really begins to make serious progress versus just the bandages and stuff that we put on it. So I just wanted to thank you and give you some fuel um, on the road that you're on to try to educate people um, and, and continue to kind of prepare people before the slides. I, I sent you a message in private chat to please, you know, I think that that's the other piece to help, help set that, that tone, but, but out, outstanding information. So thank you for sharing it. Thank you for your body of work. Thank you very much. I, yeah, I'll say that I'm very clear on, on my mission and purpose, and, and you'll see that throughout my writings. Um, but I do follow my work up with strategies uh, around how to design policies that are very conspicuous with naming a very clear mission and uh, vision around um, changing outcomes for Black and brown people. Like every policy has to, to name that and, and state that because in constructing uh, white affirmative action, which is what the American legal structure has been about for 400 years, all of these actions have been done legislatively. So you can look at the Homestead Acts of 1862, where white immigrants, white Southerners were given 160 acres of land. Um, and in, uh, I think, 1909, that expanded to 320 acres. And they didn't have to pay for it. They just filled out a, a land application. Uh, the conditions were that they either built property on it or uh, built a farm. They just had to improve it in some way. And then the deed would be handed over within five years. And these people built townships. They built entire communities. And so, you know, many Black people historically talk about 40 acres and a mule. And I say, no, we deserve way more than that. This country owes us much more than that uh, because we were excluded many times. And then the, the subsequent actions that followed up, such as the Supreme Court rulings of Corrigan v. Buckley, Buckley in 1926, which constituted that racial restrictive covenants were legally binding documents. Euclid v. Ambler, also a 1926 ruling by the Supreme Court of the United States was constituted that cities and locales could zone according to race and that where white people live, their communities would be better, the quality of the properties would be bigger, uh, higher of higher quality. Like we deserve mm -hmm. through legislative action, through, through policy to be given our just due. And I'm very clear about that. I make no qualms about it. I'm not timid around it. Yeah. Um, and if you wanna understand this better, there's a book 
by an author uh, called Ira Castellson. I say read his book in addition to mine, but it's called When Affirmative Action Was White. Um, and it talks about through the mid 20th century, all of this affirm these affirmative actions that were taken on behalf of and for the benefit of white people in America and, it, and the development, the creation of the white middle class. How, how do we take this information here as you, as you move forward and prepare in this space um, the, the, the clients, the stakeholders, communities, our families um, for the browning of America, which is really the <laughs> undergirding of the, a lot of the mud, uh, muddy water that we have that's going on to try to protect, you know, the majority, the, 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 the white Americans. Yeah. How do we take this information in a way, and I know you talked about your solutions, but in, in, a, in a micro level. Right. To take so, that. so let's be clear. First, I would say, if there are any opportunities to partner with any of you to come in and do trainings for some of the organizations that you work with, I'm also available. I think I'm starting to book out for like February, March of next year. So please contact me or my assistant. You can contact me through my website. But let's be clear, America is not Brownie. America was Brownie. That, that is about to go away. And, and if you understand the history of America, then you understand that when um, more in, uh, black and brown people were brought here as slaves, when Mexicans became Mexican-Americans and when that whole transition or um, not transition, but a war actually occurred, uh, which, which made that happen, you've got the acceleration of white immigration to this country. And so what's going on with the Ukrainian immigrants right now, that is not accidental. And so white people know how to go over to Europe to accelerate and to, uh, and reach in to that territory to make sure that this country does not brown. Um, white women in repre uh, rep who represent roughly, I think, 50 to 60 percent of those, the women who have abortions, who have abortions, this Roe v. Wade action, that was for them, right? And we see that uh, that was not for all women. The Supreme Court Act, the Supreme Court of the United States said very clearly in Buck v. Bell that we need to get rid of the weaker races, the unfit and the undesirables. And they forced compulsory sterilization with that would that at that judgment was for black and brown women. So let's be clear, America is not browning. And if we don't have enough white people here, we will go across the sea wherever we need to to go get more people who can present as white who are white. And you also have white presenting Asians, white presenting Hispanics. Um, so, so there are misnomers out there. And I think we have to be, we have to expand our understanding um, of, of, his, of our historical uh, uh, positions and the historical facts, if you will, to understand what's, what's happening in this moment. Mm. Thank you so much, Linroy, for your question, for joining us today. You're one of our regulars here on the podcast, and we're so grateful. And Dante, you really have um, provided a lot of good information for that many of us are still processing, many of us are going to sit with, many of us are going to do our own further investigations as we continue to hold curiosities around this topic that's so important for us to have dialogue around. I can't thank you enough. I hate that our time has run out. That just means we have to invite you back to share more. But thank you kindly. I want to also thank this community for joining us today. If you've heard something today that really has inspired you or helped to um, shape your 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 
our journey ahead of, of really making a difference, a positive difference in our, in our society, then I invite you to certainly share this podcast information, podcast information with those in your network. And we look forward to seeing you again next week. Thanks so much. Have a great weekend, everyone.